recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Gellinger on TalkShoe. Today is Friday, August 17th, 2012. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Before we proceed with our, our presentation on um, Luke chapter 11, I have a few things to talk about. First, interestingly, one and one wants to charge me for servers, that they want to bill me for servers that they canceled and then tell me that my, my, um, my, my termination notice voids my possibility of getting a refund. So one and one is now stealing from their customers. They canceled my service on August 4th and billed me on August 6th and, and figured that they could do that and... and um, but they might see a court complaint from that. I'm going to seriously consider that, even though I would hate to. I'm not going to let them get away with doing that. That's ridiculous. The, the um, prosync.org sites, unfortunately, are down. They'll be down for at least another five to seven days, and, and well, well, possibly longer. It usually takes five to seven days to transfer domains. And um, one one has ProSync against the wall because he can't manage the name servers on his domains until he gets them transferred out of there. And that's holding me up from helping him reinstall his websites at another web host. He does have a, a web host um, procured, and I hope to get ProSync.org up by the end of next week, um, Yahweh willing. It, it would be nice. So... We'll see what happens there. That, that's a, it's just a paperwork glitch, basically. It's, it's going to be held up until the domains are transferred to a new registrar, and, and there's not much we can do about that. Aside from that, I still have a couple of technical problems here and there on Christogenia. It's a huge task, right? Six servers on the Internet now, and, and um, it's a huge management task, and, and I'm only one person, and, and I have a... I have an expanded private life right now, and, and um, I can only do so much work. And I really do put 60 to 80, 60 to 80 hours a week, without exaggeration, into my work at ChrisDeGuinea.org, managing my websites, managing my servers, writing new material, writing new articles, writing new programs. And um, that, that's, you know, it's I'm, I can only do so much. So there is, um, last night I had an experience where a server upgrade actually knocked a bunch of my subdomains on one of my servers offline. Well, well, I couldn't foresee that, right? So I had to go around, rush around this morning and fix that up. And um, stupid little things like that, and I'll probably have more of them. That's just the way it is. I can't. It, it's. Um, I, I was comfortable where I was at one and one because all the servers were the same. They were easy to manage. Once they were configured, I didn't have to mess with them anymore. And, and um, it'll it'll be a while. I will be comfortable again and and settle in again into into a um, into a system where where I don't have to do too much technical work. But it's going to probably be a couple of months. That's the way it is. Well, when you're um, it, it's like being forced to move out of one house on short notice and and. Having to move into another house and you got broken pipes and and um, yeah, you know your furniture doesn't fit and all kinds of problems, right? I mean that's the only analogy I could make. Last week, last week I think with Luke chapter ten we saw that Luke is yeah, you know Luke is the the gospel of Luke is extremely invaluable 
to um, to covenant theology and, and to two seed line understanding. There's no doubt the gospel. And, and and several weeks ago, when we presented Luke chapters one and two here, what we saw covenant theology, um, definite statements and 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 proving beyond all doubt that that the the new covenant was only for the same people that were under the old covenant. We saw that throughout the, the first several chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke chapter 10 last week, in Luke chapter 10, verses 17, 18, 19, we saw two seed line Christian identity vindicated when Yahshua Christ himself connected the serpents and the scorpions, which were people, their analogies for people, there's a little doubt, and the demons and the fallen angels and... and, and um, the, the satanic entity, I like to call it, the, the, the Satan, which is really a collective noun describing an entire class of individuals, and basically what's a, what, well, I can't call it a race, but a, a non-race, and um, connecting all those together to that old serpent in, in the garden and to the fall of angels in, in Revelation 12, and um, the, the Herod and, and, and the, the tried to kill the Christ child. All, all those things are connected, and we saw that in, in two or three verses in, in Luke. Uh, I think it's two verses in Luke 10, 18, and 19, right? And, and we're going to see two seed line and, and covenant theology indicated again tonight in, in Luke chapter 11, which I shall proceed with now. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verse 1. And it came to pass... While he was in a certain place praying, as he had stopped, one of his students said to him, Prince, teach us to pray, just as John had also taught his students. So we see that John the Baptist was teaching his own students to pray, right? So he said to them, when you pray, you say, Father, your name must be sanctified. Your kingdom must come. Give to us each day our daily bread and forgive us our errors. For we also forgive all those indebted to us and do not bring us into trial. First, I'd like to, to discuss that word daily, right? That word is the Greek word epiousios. Epiousios, yes. That word's defined by Liddell and Scott, and they, they use an either-or definition, right? either sufficient for the coming, sufficient for what is coming, right? And so the current day. Or it may mean simply for the day. The word only appears here and in Matthew 6.11 in the same prayer, right? And aside from these two, referen uh, these two um, scriptures, only very obscure references are given for this word and it was a rare word, as Liddell and Scott say, it was a rare word, a rare word even in Origen's day in, in the second century, and Origen admits that, right? The word surely means upon being, and it may have been written necessary, give us each day our necessary bread. But in the Christogenian New Testament, it's simply daily, just like it is in the King James Version. The codices, Alexandrinus, Ephraim Siri, Beze, and Washingtonensis, 
and the majority text, so therefore the King James Version, all insert at the end of this, that this prayer, but deliver us from the evil one. The text of the Christogenian New Testament is wanting that clause, following the 3rd century papyrus P75 and the codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, which are older, right? The clause does appear in all of the manuscripts in Matthew's version of the prayer, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, but Luke evidently did not include it, and it was added on later by certain scribes. That's the way it seems to work when something appears in... Um, in 5th and 6th century manuscripts that doesn't appear in 3rd and 4th century manuscripts, right? And, and, and when you see things missing in the Christogenian New Testament, or apparently missing, well, well, usually that's exactly why, right? In the words of this prayer recorded by Luke, and also by Matthew in his Gospel, Christ teaches us to pray in a simple and, a simple and direct manner, both for our most basic needs, don't pray for that Mercedes-Benz, you're probably not going to get it, and that the kingdom of God be established on earth. Yet we have to be mindful that our sustenance is not going to drop from the sky. Until the kingdom of God is established, everything that we require in order to get by in daily life we should pray that Yahweh, our God, give us the ability to attain. Because as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone wishes not to work, neither must he eat. And then Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.8, now if anyone does not provide for his own, a man is obligated to provide for his own, and especially of kin, he is denied the faith and is inferior to one of the faithless. So give us today our daily bread is not the anticipation of a welfare check from God. We are praying to him that we may have the ability to provide for our own, that we may have the ability to obtain our daily bread whether through the work of our hands or through some other means. And lead us not into trial. The Greek word pyrasmus and related words may either be trial, which is the basic meaning of the word, or temptation, temptation in the sense of being tested, right? There have been commentators who have seen a conflict between the last request of this prayer, where Christ tells us to petition Yahweh God that he bring us not into trial, and the words of the Apostle James in his epistle in chapter 1, in verse 13, where it says, No one being tried must say that from Yahweh I am tried. For Yahweh is not able to be tempted by evil, and he tries no one, but each is tried by his own desires being drawn out and enticed. Paul agrees with James 
that we are tried by our own fleshly nature. At 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, where Paul states that, speaking to the Corinthians, that temptation has not seized you except from manhood. In other words, we're only tempted by our manly or womanly fleshly nature, right? Here is the full passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I'll read verses 12 and 13. Consequently, he who is expecting to be established must beware lest he shall fall. You know, Paul had um, also advised in Galatians that when a brother need correction, that we do so humbly so that we ourselves are not tested in the same test whereby our brother needs correction, right? So we don't vaunt ourselves over our brethren, right? Consequently, he who is expecting to be established must beware lest he shall fall. In other words, any one of us is liable to sin at any given moment, right? Temptation has not ceased you except for manhood, but trustworthy is Yahweh who will not permit you to be tempted beyond where you are able tempted or tried, face the, the, the facing of trials, right? But with the temptation, he will also bring about the way out for which to be able to bear it. Yahweh tries no man, as the Apostle James tells us. Yet Yahweh allowed Job to be tried by the adversary. That's the whole story of the book of Job, right? Yahweh tempts no man, but allows us to be tempted by the world. This seems to be a paradox, Yet it's a rather simple concept, I believe. Speaking of unanswered prayer, James says in his epistle, and I'm going to quote James chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, you request and you do not receive for reason that you request evil, like, like coveting something like that fancy car, right? In order that you may be consumed in your pleasures, adulterers, do you not know that the love of society is hatred for Yahweh? He, therefore, who would desire to be a friend of society, establishes himself as an enemy of Yahweh. Like the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, Do not love society, nor the things in society, the fancy car, or whatever else you may be praying for. It's really fleshly, right? If one should love the society, the love of the Father is not in him. Because all which is in society, the desire of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the pretense of life, is not from of the Father, but is from of the society or the world. And the society passes on in its desire, but he doing the will of Yahweh abides forever. Now to read the passage from James in its entirety, from James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Blessed is a man who endures trial, because being approved, he shall receive the crown of life which he promised to those who love him. No one being tried must say that from Yahweh I am tried, for Yahweh is not able to be tempted by evil, and he tries no one. But each is tried, by his own desires being drawn out and enticed. 
Then the desire conceiving gives birth to sin or error, and the error being, being accomplished brings forth death. Presenting this prayer, and Father, lead us not into temptation, or lead us not into trial. Presenting this prayer, Christ is talking about sin, and he's talking about forgiveness. The trials which he tells us to ask God for relief from must therefore be the trials related to sin, whether those which lead the weaker among us into sin or those which are a direct result of our sin. As Paul tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 and 8, you endure discipline as sons of Yahweh, as sons, Yahweh engages with you. For what is a son whom a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which you all have become partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. Yahweh does not try men directly, as James insists. Yahweh knows no temptation, and he does not tempt us. However, man is tried by his own fleshly desires and the weakness of the flesh capitulating to those desires. And there are different types of trials for various reasons. For instance, in, one John, in, in the Gospel of John in chapter 9, there was a man born blind from birth. The students of Christ asked for whose sin the man was punished in such a manner his own, or that of his parents. Christ responded, and I quote, John 9, 3, Neither has this man done wrong, nor his parents, but so that the works of Yahweh could be manifest by him, or through him. That's why the man was born blind. While it may not have been the case with Job, most often when men are tempted... It is due to their own lusts, which they give into. And this leads us to trial. Obeying the will of God, we would not give in to such worldly desires. And we would have a far less chance of being subjected to the trials of this world. From the Septuagint, Psalm 18, verse 30. As for my God, his way is perfect. The oracles of Yahweh are tried in the fire. In other words, if we keep them, they are already tried, and they will stand true. He is a protector of all them that hope in him. Job was tried for the glory of God. Satan, the adversary, challenged Yahweh and said that if Job lost all he had, he would curse God to his face. Well, the story of Job is that God took Satan up on it and let Satan take all Job had, but Job never cursed God to his face. Job never blamed God for his sin. Job never proclaimed his own righteousness. A lot of people read Job and even miss the fact that Job's friends were trying to get Job to proclaim his own innocence and his own righteousness, and Job would never do that. 
Therefore, Job was justified. And because he never cursed God, because he never blamed God for his sin or for his judgment and the trial that he endured, he was justified. That's the test of Job. There is the divine will of God, and there is the permissive will of God. In the perfect world, one, uh, a world, a world completely obedient to the divine will of God, there is no sin, and there is no judgment, right? In this world, where fallible men have the option to choose between good and evil, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Isn't that what it says in Genesis chapter 3? There are the trials which lead men to sin, and there are the trials which result from sin. Men have a free will choice. And even though Yahweh God cannot help but to know in advance what choice men shall make, and therefore free will is really an illusion, right? And it may, it may therefore be theoretically perceived that there is no choice at all, because God knows the outcome already, right? Nevertheless, by the act of sinning, by, the making, by making the choice to sin, men certainly choose to accept their sin. That's what's going on there. God knows that you're going to sin. He knows when you're going to sin. He knows what trial he's, that, you know, that you're going to encounter in life that you're going to fail, and he knows what trial that you're going to encounter in life that you're not going to fail, right? But by choosing to sin, God allowing us the choice, men certainly have chosen to accept that particular sin. Whether they had a choice in the matter or not is immaterial. Of course God knew that Esau was going to be a race mixer. But it was Esau's choice to be a race mixer. And even though Esau was destined without doubt by God to be a race mixer, so that choice is really an illusion in the end, Esau doesn't know that. And when Esau chose those Canaanite wives and those Ishmaelite wives, he accepted, he chose of his own free will to accept that sin. Therefore, in no place in the scripture is God ever blamed for the sins of men. James Brueggemann is a liar, right? He's just a liar, teaching, uh, teaching people that all sin is God's fault. In no place in scripture is God ever blamed for the sins of men. Yet in spite of this, there are some people who would blame God for all sin and for all trial. David exclaimed that he had sinned. David said, I have sinned. David, the man after God's own heart. David, who knew the scriptures, who was a prophet. He was considered a prophet by Christ and the apostles. And he said, what did David say? I have sinned. David did not say, God, why did you make me sin? Nope, David never said that. 
Some people would teach that today. Some fools, James Brueggemann. Blaming God for our sin is a blasphemy. It's a blasphemy that Job was rewarded for not having made. That attitude is what James is addressing in his epistle where James states that God tries no man. Christ teaches us to pray for forgiveness, that we are not tempted, and that we are not tried in punishment as a result of our sin. So we really don't want to be tried, so we pray that we don't have to face those trials, that God lifts them from us. Because we really don't want to be tried. Why don't we want to be tried? Because we know that we're men and we're going to fail. At least a, a, a good percentage of the time, right? And if we do fail, we pray for forgiveness, that we're not led into trial, that we're not led into punishment for our sins. Because even though we know that God chastises his sons, that still doesn't mean that we want to undergo the chastisement, right? I mean, that's, that, that would be silly. So that's why, on the surface, it appears that James's statement and, and the prayer that Christ taught us to pray, to the simple-minded, it appears that there's a conflict in those two statements. There's really no conflict at all. Luke 11, verse 5. Then he said to them, Which of you has a friend and goes to him in the middle of the night and says to him, Friend, lend to me three loaves, since my friend has arrived from a journey to me, and I have nothing which I may offer him. And he inside, the guy that got woke up in the middle of the night, right? And he inside replying says, do not cause me trouble. Already the door is bolted and my children are in bed with me. I am not able rising to provide for you. I say to you, even if he does not arise to give to him on account of being his friend, then on account of his impudence arising, he will give to him as much as he may need. The topic here has not changed. And this parable is directly related to our prayers for both our daily bread and for forgiveness for our sins. While we often allow the slightest inconvenience to serve as an excuse not to help our brethren, we see here that the man being rather impudent by demanding bread from a neighbor in the middle of the night, would not have demanded that bread. He would not have done so if he did not have an emergent need. In this case, the arrival of an unexpected guest at that late hour. We ask our Father in our necessity, and he shall provide for us. If he doesn't provide for us on account of us being under his covenant, then on account of our own impudence, making requests of him in our sinful state, he will provide for us. 
rely on God. Whether you're a sinner or not, you can rely on God. That's what Christ is saying here. And I say to you, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened for you. For all who are asking shall receive, and he who is seeking shall find. And to him knocking, it shall be opened. We seek our God, and we have a promise of fulfillment. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please. Impossible to please God. Indeed, it is necessary for one approaching Yahweh to believe that he is. And for those seeking him, he becomes a rewarder. Hosea 3.5 Afterward, shall the children of Israel return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king, and shall fear Yahweh and his goodness in the later days. We have that promise, those of us who seek God today. Luke 11, 11. Now from which father among you should a son request a fish? And instead of a fish, would give to him a serpent. Or then should he request an egg, would give to him a scorpion. Mindful of the serpents and scorpions of Luke chapter 10, right? That's not a mistake. Therefore, if you being base know to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall the Father who is from heaven give the Holy Spirit to those asking him? The fish rather than the serpent, the egg rather than the scorpion. Christ did not choose these particular objects for his comparison by chance. Luke 10, verses 18 and 19. And he said to them, I beheld the adversary falling as lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and upon all the power of the enemy. And no one shall be any, by any means do you injustice. The serpents and the scorpions are not going to replace the good fish of the kingdom of God. However, Yahweh's true children must seek his face. And then they are given. Ask and you shall receive. We have to ask righteously. And we can't ask out of fleshly desire, right? Ask and you shall receive. Knock and it shall be opened for you. You will find the truth if you seek it. You will find the will of God in your life if you seek it. You will find your daily requirements if you seek it from God. Verse 14. Then he was casting out a mute demon. And it happened that upon the demons departing, the mute spoke. And the crowds wondered. And one of them said, By Beelzebul, the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. The third century papyrus P45 has, and one of the powerful ones, or potentates among them, spoke, saying, 
by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons, he cast out demons. The codices Alexandrinus and Beze insert after verse 15, and replying, he said, how is Satan able to cast out Satan? I have a note on the on, on the, the word Beelzebul or Beelzebub here. The codices Sinaiticus and Vaticus have Beelzebul. The Beelzebub of the King James Version. A lot of people defend the majority text in the King James Version, right? Well, here, the King James Version didn't even follow the majority text. Nor does it follow any other Greek manuscript. Rather, it follows the Latin Vulgate. Beelzebul is, is the reading from the earliest papyri and also the majority of ancient codices. In verses 18 and 19, all the manuscripts are consistent. Beelzebub comes from Jerome's Vulgate, and it means Lord of the Fly. But the reading in the New Testament is peculiar to the Vulgate. Beelzebul is the Lord of Dung. They're actually saying that by the Lord of Dung, Christ casts out demons. And, and that's a pretty um, pretty disgusting thought, right? It, it's, it's, it's a slur, there's no doubt. It's a slur that, that, that um, was meant to purposely denigrate Christ by the people that, that made the accusation, right? In the Old Testament, we see um, Baal-Zebub, the Lord of the Fly, appear. And maybe that's why Jerome changed it, right? Because he appears to have changed it. Because it's, it, his reading, Beelzebub, is in no Greek manuscript. Baal-Zebub is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 1. And Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria and was sick. And he sent messengers and said unto them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover of this disease. So evidently the people of Ekron were worshiping the Lord of the Fly. Maybe that's where the title for the book came from, right? But the angel of Yahweh said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say unto them, is it not because there is not a God in Israel that ye go to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Verse 16. Then others, making trial, had requested from him a sign from heaven. Christ seems to ignore this here, but he addresses it further on in the discourse below from verse 29. And we'll get to that in a few minutes, right? Verse 17. But he, knowing their reasoning, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is desolate, and house falls. I'm sorry, and house upon house falls. And if the adversary, and if Satan, is divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Here's something that even a lot of people in identity miss. I see a lot of people in Christian identity supporting the plight of the Arabs, right? Well, the Arabs are first, well, the word Arab means mixed. If you're an Arab, you're of mixed race. If you're of mixed race, you're a bastard. And if you're a bastard, 
you'll never enter the congregation of Yahweh. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. Christians, and especially Christian identity Christians, make a huge mistake in supporting the plight of Arabs against the Jew. Because the Arabs are every bit bastards as much as the Jews. And most Arabs, and this could be established historically, have every bit the same amount of Canaanite and Edomite blood in them that the Jews do. A lot of people like to think that the Arabs are Ishmaelites. Read your Old Testament scripture. The Ishmaelites and the Edomites were very close to each other and had much intercourse and intermarriage throughout Old Testament history. The Ishmaelites are every bit as much Canaanites and Edomites that the, that the Jews are. Christians should be aware of this whenever they observe world events, that if Satan's house is divided against itself, it shall not stand. The Arabs and all of the other bastards and non-Adamic peoples of the world are just as much a part of the satanic entity as the Jews are. And we understand the crimes of the Jews, and we like to point them out, and that's fine. But I wouldn't have empathy for the Arabs, right? Satan's house is divided against itself all over the world. And real Christians should not choose one satanic family over another. Rather, they should only care for other Christians and seek the kingdom of God. And when I say other Christians, I'm talking from a viewpoint of covenant theology. Covenant theology tells us that only the pure children of Israel can be Christians. Everybody else can go to the lake of fire. Seeing that you speak of me, casting out demons by Beelzebul, to finish verse 18. Now if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For that reason they shall be your judges. speaking to his adversaries in Judea. And their children shall indeed be their judges. For the people of Judea who at the crucifixion had observed and supported the priests at the trial of Yahshua had exclaimed that his blood be on us and our children. When the day comes, those children shall surely curse their fathers and be their judges. Verse 20. But if by the finger of Yahweh I cast out demons, then the kingdom of Yahweh has overtaken you. So the kingdom of Yahweh is not within you, right? It can't be within you if it's overtaking you. When the strong man, being equipped, should guard his court, his possessions are in peace. The Greeks should say the kingdom of Yahweh is among you. But when one stronger than him coming should conquer him, 
He takes from him the armor upon which he had trusted, and they distribute his spoils. When I presented Matthew chapter 12 here last year, when this discourse was encountered, I presented Clifton M. Heiser's short essay, The Binding of the Strongman, from his paper available on his website, Biblical Canaanites, Who Are They? I'm not going to repeat all of that here, but I will offer a few short comments. Here Christ is referring to the kingdom of heaven overtaking Satan, the collective adversary, which is divided against itself. Therefore, if the strong man represents Satan, then Satan includes all of those who are opposed to Christ here. And Satan, in this case, those Canaanite Edomite Jews who had come to rule over Judea by this time, and they were the people who rejected him. And that's very clear from the short parable in the binding of the strong man. Satan's house is divided against itself, and Christ came to bind the strong man. So Satan's house cannot stand. If Christians stood for Christ, Satan would never be able to rule over us. Paul foretold the crushing of this Satan by the Romans in his epistle to the Romans in Romans 16.20 where he said to them, Yahweh of peace will crush the adversary or crush Satan under your feet quickly or shortly. And several years later, the Romans destroyed Judea. And that is what Paul was referring to. Eventually, Christ did bind the strong man. When several centuries later, Christianity excluded Jews from society, and that exclusion lasted for a thousand years. That very thing is foretold in Revelation chapter 20. It was a process that occurred from the acceptance and spread of Christianity throughout the old Roman Empire under the Byzantines at the beginning from the 6th through the ninth centuries of the Christian era. By the 19th century, a thousand years later, and also another process which took many years because it started in the 16th century with the De Medici's. By the 19th century, the Jew, who had been basically excluded from European society for a thousand years, they weren't allowed to live among Christians. They had to live in their own ghettos, they called them. They had to wear clothing indicating that they were Jews. They weren't allowed to own Christian slaves. They weren't allowed to loan money at usury to Christians. They were not allowed to hold any public office in any Christian nation, which meant all the nations of Europe. Jews were basically contained in the pit for a thousand years in Christian society. By the 19th century, after being contained in a pit for a thousand years, 
The Jews, once again, with the French Revolution and the time of Napoleon, had gained equal citizenship in the host nations that he infiltrated. And Satan was loosed out of the pit. The strong man was unbound, right? Satan was loosed out of the pit to go out and deceive all of the nations. If all of the nations are deceived today, then Satan's out of the pit. It's real simple. And we in Christian identity should be able to look at the world and know. We know damn well that all of the nations are deceived today. So Satan must be out of the pit. It's real simple. Thus we have the state of affairs, which we see at this very time today. Now Satan deceived all the nations, and the entire world lies under the power of the Talmudic Jew in either the system of Jewish capitalism or the system of Jewish communism. And the two are actually one and the same beast. So we see in Christ, you know, the church, the, 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 the Byzantine church, the Roman Catholic church, whatever you want to call it, when it started, it was, it, it was the Roman church and it got its power from the Byzantine kings at the first, right? They didn't do everything wrong. They did a lot of things right. Of course, they became corrupted over time. But initially, they had a lot of things right. They didn't have it all wrong. I mean, right from the beginning, they were into sacramentalism and the rituals and, and the authority of priests and things that were wrong, but they didn't have it all wrong. Verse 23. He who is not with me is against me, and he who is not gathering with me scatters. This is an important verse. Christ told us that he came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 15, 24. All of the prophecies which describe the gathering of Christ at his coming describe only the gathering of the children of Israel. And only Israel is under the covenant in Christ as Jeremiah 31, 31 states explicitly, where Yahweh says, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Psalm 147, verses 1 through 7. Praise ye Yahweh, for it is good to sing praises unto our God, for it is pleasant and praise is comely. Yahweh does build up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He tells the number of the stars. Abraham's seed would be like the stars of heaven. He calls them all by their names. Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Yahweh lifts up the meek. He casts the wicked to the ground. And from another psalm, blessed is he who dashes their children against the rocks. Speaking of the children of Esau. Sing unto Yahweh with thanksgiving. Sing praise upon the harp unto our God. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel.
Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 8. But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. If he is Christ, if Christ is Yahweh come in the flesh, then only the children of Israel can be Christians. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Only Israel matters to God. Only the children of Israel matter to God. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed. He who is not gathering with me scatters. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee, Israel, from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yeah, I have made him. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. It is about time for the children of Israel to open their eyes and their ears. Since no man gathers figs from thorns or grapes from a bramble bush, Christians should only expect to gather unto Christ from the lost sheep of the house of Israel. If you're trying to make Christians out of aliens, you're, you are working against Christ. Anyone attempting to bring an alien into the sheepfold is actually scattering the sheep. He who is not gathering with me scatters. If you're trying to bring Negroes and yellow squat monsters to Christ, you're not gathering. You're scattering. Christ only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He never came for Negroes and yellow squat monsters. Verse 24, when the unclean spirit departs from a man, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest, and not finding it, then it says, I shall return to my house from which I had departed. And having come, it finds it swept clean and ornamented. Then it goes and invites seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and entering in dwells there. And the end for that man becomes worse than the first. 
Christ is still talking about Satan. The topic hasn't changed. God can keep his attention span. God can keep the same topic through a thread or a discourse. God is not a scatterbrain. He's still talking about his enemies. He's still talking about the strong man, the binding, the Satan gathered, the Satan divided against itself. Discussing this parable, and yes, it is a parable, which is an allegory, which is not to be taken literally, when covering Matthew chapter 12, I said that I believe that it refers to what preceded, and I say the same thing here. I said that it is not a disconnected thought, and it is not, and that it is saying that those who deny Christ, even if there are times when they seem to do good, having their house set in order, yet they shall in the end do eight times more wickedly than the first. Think about it. All of the children of Adam have the Spirit of God. When the unclean spirit departs from a child from, from a child of God, the house is not found empty. We have that treasure in earth and vessels. This is not talking about the children of God. This is talking about his enemies. If a bad tree cannot produce good fruit, there is no such thing as a good Edomite. There is no such thing as a good Jew. A good Jew is an oxymoron, since there cannot possibly be a good Antichrist. When the unclean spirit departs from a man, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest and finding it not it then says, I shall return to my house from which I had departed. And having come, it finds it swept clean and ornamented and evidently empty. Then it goes and invites seven other spirits more wicked than itself and entering in dwells there, and the end for that man becomes worse than the first. We can't have any Jews for Jesus. the end of that Jew will be eight times worse than the first, than it the first. And it happened as he spoke these things. Some woman, raising a voice up from the crowd, said to him, Blessed is the womb which bore you and the breasts which you suckled. But he said, Wait, blessed are those hearing and keeping the word of Yahweh. Comparing this account to Matthew chapter 12, we find that this is an incomplete perspective. And the fact that it is an incomplete perspective, coupled with the understanding that the gospel accounts indeed originated in places with the same witnesses, and so they have many similarities, and in places with various witnesses, so they also have many differences, only helps to prove that they are genuine, compi genuine compilations of events as described by actual witnesses. They are not 
contrivances made in the parlors of conspirators. And all of the idiosyncrasies amongst the various Gospels proves that beyond doubt. The woman here in Luke did not suddenly blurt out references to Yahshua's mother, which is sort of the impression we get reading this, right? But rather, there was a reason for the reference, and a different perspective is found in Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50, which is a record of the same event. And from the two, we could draw a more complete picture of the event being described. So I will read that. While he spoke to the crowds, behold, his mother and his brethren stood outside to speak with him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brethren stand outside seeking to speak with you. But replying, he said to him, speaking, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And extending his hand over his students, he said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for he who would do the will of Yahweh my Father who is in the heavens, he is my brother and sister and mother. Of course, Matthew 12 can be used in, in, in the proof that Mary had other children after she had her firstborn son, who was Christ. Seeing this account in Matthew, we can understand why the witness that Luke used for the events in his passage only recalled some woman raising up a voice from the crowd saying to him, blessed is the womb which bore you and the breasts which you suckled. So we see two totally different perspectives of this story, one in Matthew and one in Luke, and they go together perfectly. And that helps us to understand that the Bible, the, the gospel books were not copies of each other, right? They were collections of various accounts which were pieced together by the apostles who recorded them. And some of those accounts they held in common and others they did not. And that shows us that the compilations are legitimate. Now, this event also destroys the credibility of Mary worship, which is found in the Roman Catholic Church, right? It's found in the Roman Church from the earliest centuries of its existence. The Roman Church has the attitude of the woman. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the teats that you suckled. The Roman Church to this day has the attitude of the woman and here, Christ rebukes that attitude because it's wrong. We do not worship Mary. We do not worship the creation more than the creator. We don't worship any member of the creation at all. We don't worship any woman or any man. We only worship God. And Christ is God come in the flesh. As Thomas exclaimed when he saw his wounds, my Lord and my God. He's the only one worthy of worship. 
In the next passage, Christ addresses the seeking of signs mentioned above in verse 16, which he did not address earlier in his discourse. Then upon the gathering of the crowd, he began to speak. (coughs) Excuse me. This race is a wicked race. It seeks a sign. And a sign shall not be given to it except the sign of Jonah. The Codex Beze appends to the end of verse 29. And just as Jonah had been in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so also the Son of Man in the earth. Now those words do belong in Matthew 12.40, but Luke did not record them. And evidently, the scribe of the Codex Beze thought that Luke needed help, right? So he recorded them. Now the words the prophet, except the sign of Jonah the prophet, as the King James Version states, are also not found in any of the early manuscripts, right? Luke 11, verse 30. For just as Jonah had been assigned to the Ninevites, this is a very important passage, so also shall the Son of Man be to this race, the queen of the south shall arise in the judgment with the men of this race and shall condemn them. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, the greater than Solomon is here. The men of the Ninevites shall be resurrected in the judgment with this race and shall condemn it. Because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah. And behold, a greater than Jonah is here. I did a podcast, I did a presentation of the, gospel, of, of the prophecy of Jonah last year. It, it has about 1,600 downloads, I believe. It, it's probably the, um, the only full explanation and, and sensible explanation that you'll find of why the Assyrians actually believed Jonah. Because the Assyrian pagan religion worshipped Semiramis who was said to be born of a fish and suckled by doves. The word Jonah is a Hebrew word which means dove and Jonah came out of a fish, right? So the Jonah story parallels Assyrian pagan religion and the Assyrians must have certainly been struck by that. That's why they believed Jonah. And it makes perfect sense. And we see that God uses the folly of man to convey his message. And that happens quite often. Here we see that there will be people in the resurrection who are not Israelites. Imagine that. The men of Nineveh were Assyrians, and Nineveh was their capital city. They were were the descendants of the patriarch Asher, the son of Shem, who is mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, verses 11 and 22. So we see that these people, these descendants of Asher, are actually cousins to the Hebrews, right? The queen of Sheba. She was also an Adamic woman. She was either, and, and it's, it's, it's a question that we may never answer until, the, uh, until the, the final day, right? 
She was either a descendant of Ham, for which see Genesis 10.7, or a descendant of Shem, for which see Genesis 10.28 and Genesis 25.3. Ham had a son named Sheba, and Joktan, the descendant of Arphaxad, also the, the son of Shem, also had a son named Sheba. And the ancient kingdom of Sheba, while I lean towards that belonging to the Shemites, it's really not, well, we're not able to tell that, right? We really aren't. So I wouldn't venture to guess. The first promise of eternal life is found at the end of Genesis chapter 3, and I will quote from verse 22. And Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way to the tree of life. A lot of fools would think that that was to prevent the way to the tree of life. That is not true. The symbology is meant to relate to us that the way to the tree of life shall always be preserved to our race, that we are never going to lose it. The cherubim and the sword are to keep the way of the tree of life to ensure that we have it. The tree of life is Christ and his race. As he tells us in John 15:5, I am the vine and you are the branches. The fall of Adam was caused by a race-mixing event described in the parable, and it is a parable, of Genesis chapter 3. I have a quote. The sin against blood and race is the hereditary sin in this world, and it brings disaster on every nation that commits it. Adolf Hitler understood Genesis chapter 3. That comes from Adolf Hitler. Mein Kampf, James Murphy translation, page 142. If we keep our race, if we don't race mix, We have eternal life. We cling to the tree of life, to our race. Because we have that spirit which Yahweh our God designed into our DNA. And we cannot die because our seed is in us. As the Apostle John explains in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. And as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that we're born a physical seed and raised a spiritual seed. And if there is an Adamic physical body, then we are assured that we have that spiritual body through which is the resurrection. 
If we mix our race, we create broken cisterns. If we mix our race, we partake in the sin unto death from which Esau could not repent. While Esau himself is an Adamic man, he lost his birthright because he had no legitimate heirs to leave it to. We must cleave to our own kind in order to have life. We must put forth our hands and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. However, as we have seen here, and as we see in the promise to, to the entire Adamic race, that they will all receive resurrection. Genesis 3.22. However, the status of the children of Israel in the kingdom of God is unique. And only they enter into the city of God, which is described in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Since only their names are written on its gates. We see a type for this. We see in the Old Testament the meeting between Solomon and the Queen of Sheba described in 1 Kings chapter 10 and in 2 Chronicles chapter 9. Solomon communed with the queen in all things, but never brought her into the temple of Yahweh. Rather, as the scripture says, he only showed to her his ascent by which he went up into the house of Yahweh. That's in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 5, and in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 4. Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 31. That section of scripture represents the gospel for non-Israelite descendants of Adam. I'm going to read it for this program. I wasn't going to read it, but I will. It'll take a second to, to get right. Paul's in Athens. The people of Athens are Ionian Greeks. That's their race. They're Ionian Greeks. The people in Corinth are Dorian Greeks, right? That's a different tribe with a different history. They were Greek. Greek represents... Greek stands for a culture and a language. It doesn't stand for a race. The tribes of Greece, there were the Pulaskians and the Danans and the Dorians and the Aeolians and, and the Ionians and, and they were that they all had arrived in Greece at a different time and came from different places. Ultimately they all came from the children of Adam, right? But they took different routes to end up in Greece. The Ionian Greeks were the Japhethite descendants of the patriarch Javan. The patriarch Javan is mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, verses 2 and 4. He's the son of Japheth. Yavan would be the way 
or, or Yawan would be the name, way that his name is pronounced. And on the Persian inscription, known as the Behistun Rock, and on other Persian inscriptions, it's found that the Ionians are called Yavana or Yawana in Persian. There's a clear correlation. The Ionians, who are Iowan in or Yowan in the Septuagint, there's an absolutely clear correlation in history between these people of Athens, these Ionian Greeks of Athens, and the people of Japan. The etymology is perfectly clear, that they're one and the same. The prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 27 makes it absolutely clear that by the Ionians and the way that Javan is written in the Septuagint in Genesis chapter 10, that the Ionians are Javan also. There's no doubt. Here's Paul's gospel to the Ionians. And we see that Christ tells us that the, the, the men of Asher and the Queen of Sheba will be in the resurrection. Here's Paul's gospel to the Ionians who are Javan. They're Japhethites. They're not Israel. From Acts 17.22. Then Paul, standing in the middle of the hill of air, said, Men, Athenians, I observe that in all respects you are most superstitious. For passing through and considering your objects of worship, I found even an altar upon which was inscribed to the unknown God. So that which is unknown, you reverence, and this I declare to you, Paul's making a literary device and taking advantage of the fact that the Athenians had an altar to the unknown God, right? Yahweh, who made the order, who made the world, and all the things in it, he being prince of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hand. Neither is he attended by the hands of men, being in need of anything. That's an assault on Athenian paganism, right? Himself giving to all life and breath in all things. And he made from one every nation of men to dwell upon all the face of the earth. Now, this is a direct reference, and most biblical cross-references have this reference to Deuteronomy 32.8, which says that when Yahweh separated the nations, he left the bound the boundaries of the nations according to the number of the children of Israel, right? When he separated the sons of Adam, it says. The sons of Adam, not the squat monsters and the Negroes. Appointing the times ordained and the boundaries of their settlements. A direct reference to Deuteronomy 32.8. To seek Yahweh. If surely then they should, they would seek him they would find him, and indeed, he being not far from each one of us. For in him we live and we move and we are, even as some of the poets have said concerning you. For we are also his offspring. And yes, the ancient poets believed that the Greeks were the children of God, the children of Zeus, if you'll have it. Some of them, though, believe that they were the children of 
other gods, and, and that's probably a remembrance of the events of Genesis chapter 6 and an elaboration upon it. Therefore, being the offspring of Yahweh, we are not obligated to esteem gold or silver or stone, engraved crafts, and of the inventions of man, to be like that of a god. In other words, Paul's telling, Paul was telling the Ionian Greeks, the Athenians, to put away their idolatry, because they are children of God as well. But Paul has no message of repentance to the Ionian Greeks in, 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 in the understanding of the law and sin. He has no message of redemption. He has no message of reconciliation to them like he had to many of the lost Israelite churches of his epistles. He treats the Ionians a little differently. But Christ tells us that the entire Adamic race is going to be in the resurrection. Genesis 3.22, and what we've just read here in Luke chapter 11. So therefore, the times of ignorance Yahweh is overlooking. Now altogether he instructs men everywhere, men everywhere, that's the key word, right? To repent, for that he has established a day in which he is going to judge the inhabited earth, the oikumene, the, the white world the Adamic world in righteousness by a man whom he is appointed having provided an assurance to all raising him from the dead. That's Paul's gospel to the non-Israelite descendants of Adam. Luke 11 verse 33 no one lighting a lamp sets it in a vault or under a bushel, but upon a lampstand, in order that those entering in would see the light. Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye should be sincere, even your whole body is light. But whenever it may be evil, then your body is darkness. So watch that the light which is in your body is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is light, not having any part with darkness, the whole shall be light as when a lamp illuminates you with bright light. Yahshua Christ is the word of God made flesh. Yahshua Christ is the light come into the world. John chapter 1. If we have his word in us, we shall shine forth that light and we shall not hide it. Interestingly, one Hebrew word for sun is Shemesh. But Shemesh can also mean, as a phrase, the people of Shem. As Christ said to his followers in the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew chapter 5, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it gives light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. For that reason, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I quote from verse 6, 
Because Yahweh, speaking out of darkness, shines forth light through Christ, which is shown in our hearts for illumination of the knowledge of the honor of Yahweh in the person of Yahshua Christ. Paul is also saying here that Christ is God, right? Now we have this treasure in earthen vessels, the spirit which Yahweh put in Adamic man in order that the greatness of the power would be of Yahweh and not from us. The treasure in earthen vessels is the spirit which God bestowed on the children of Adam. Resurrection is by that spirit. All the children of Adam had that spirit, including the Ionian Greeks, the men of Nineveh, the queen of Sheba. Paul says in Romans 8.11, But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies. This is the resurrection. By his spirit that dwells in you. It's through the spirit. The entire Adamic race has that spirit and therefore that promise of resurrection. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 18 For this reason, just as by one man, sin entered into the society, and by that sin, death, and in that manner, death is passed to all men on account that all have sinned. For in total law, sin was in the society, but sin was not accounted, there not being law. But death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned resembling the transgression of Adam, who is an image of the future. But should not, as the transgression in that manner, also be the favor. Indeed, if in a transgression of one many die, much greater is the favor of Yahweh and the gift in favor, which is of the one man, Yahshua Christ, in which many have great advantage. And not then, by one having sinned, is the gift. Indeed, the fact that a judgment of a single one is for condemnation, but the favor is from many transgressions into a judgment of acquittal. Christ was condemned on our behalf. He who is without sin was condemned so that we may all be acquitted. For if in the transgression of one, meaning Adam, Death has taken reign through that one. Much more is the advantage of the favor and the gift of justice, the race of Adam. They are receiving. In life, they will reign through the one, Yahshua Christ. So then, as that one transgression is for all men a sentence of condemnation, that's the entire Adamic race, right? In this manner, then, through one decision of judgment for all men is for a judgment of life. All the Adamic Genesis 10 nations are indeed blessed in Abraham's seed. Luke 11:37. Then, while he was speaking, a Pharisee asked him whether he would have lunch with him. And emerging, I'm sorry, and entering in, he reclined. And the Pharisee, watching, wondered that he had not first washed before lunch. 
And the Greek word for wash here is baptizo. There are other words that mean washing, which indicate a sanitary washing. Baptizo indicates a ritual washing. And the prince said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the plate, but your inside is full of rapine and wickedness. Fools, has he who ma- has not he who makes the outside also made the inside? But to the things within you should give mercy. And behold, all to you is clean. But woe to you Pharisees, because you give a tenth of the mint and rue and every herb, and you elude the judgment and the love of Yahweh. Now these things it is necessary to do, and the others not to pass by. Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the first benches in the assembly halls, and the greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you were like unmarked graves, and the men walking over them did not see them. The Greek phrase translated as unmarked graves literally means monuments which are not seen. The Pharisees were self-righteous, being, as they themselves supposed, exacting keepers of the law. They also looked down upon the other nations of the Adamic Oikumene as not having had the law. All of these recorded events and the statements from Yahshua, which are given here, are interconnected. They have a purposeful design. They are not merely a collection of disparate random events and utterances. They are not a series of disconnected little stories. They all have a common theme. They are laid out in a manner which teaches us that salvation is drawn upon racial lines and not upon rituals or legalism. God is not a lawyer, but the devil is. First, we see the promise of resurrection, even of the non-Israelite branches of the Adamic race. Then we see a slap at the Pharisees for ritualism and for legalism. The promise of salvation is racial, and the Pharisees have neglected all of the most important matters of the law while engaging in legalism concerning the trivial matters. At the same time, their sense of self-righteousness leads them to a pretense of self-importance, loving the adulation of men. This has been a trait of professional priesthoods throughout history. And we see all of these same things in the mainstream denominations of today, and especially in the synagogues and in the Roman and Greek churches. Luke 11.45 Then replying, one of the lawyers said to him, Teacher, saying these things you also insult us. So he said, and to you lawyers, woe, 
because you load men with burdens hard to bear, and these burdens you touch with not one of your fingers. Unto this day, the lawyers create all sorts of legislation and impose it upon men. But they never offer to help man under the weight of the burdensome regulations. There were just over 600 laws in the Old Testament books of the law, 613 by the popular counts, right? All of them can be set aside with the Ten Commandments. Following the basic commandments and the Spirit of God in our hearts, we can walk in His law. We don't need to remember them. Under the Canaanite, Edomite, Jewish control that we suffer today, we have an IRS code of tens of thousands of pages. We have more laws than any man could ever follow. In that manner, any man is liable for some violation at any given time. That is why Satan is called Diabolus, or literally, the false accuser. All throughout Scripture, the tree is indeed known by its fruit. All we need as Christians to live in a God-fearing, godly, loving society is those Ten Commandments. And to love our brother. Verse 47. Woe to you, because you built the monuments of the prophets and your fathers killed them. Therefore you are witnesses and you consent to the works of your fathers because they killed them and you build. For this reason also, the wisdom of Yahweh says, I shall send to them prophets and ambassadors, and some of them they shall kill and they shall persecute. There are apocryphal works extant describing the deaths of certain prophets, which have one degree of legitimacy or illegitimacy, depending on what side you're working on, or, or another. However, we are not told anything specific of the fates of the most of the prophets in Scripture. Among other things, Paul says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, that they were stoned, they were cut in pieces, and they died by the slaughter of the sword. Legend has it that the prophet Isaiah died being sawn in half. Some Jew must have did that. Whenever we do see the priests of Yahweh being slaughtered in Scripture, we can see the hand of the enemies of our God are involved, such as the case with Jezebel, who was very possibly a Canaanite. Such is the case when Saul, the king of Israel, wanted to execute the priest of Yahweh and the only man who stood up to satiate his desire was Doeg, the Edomite. At 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10, however, in the words of Elijah the prophet, the children of Israel themselves are blamed for the deaths of the prophets in his time. And I will quote, And he said, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, 
and they seek my life to take it away. Yet we must bear in mind that by the time of Elijah, the ten northern tribes had already split, split away from Judah, and they had gone off into bow worship and the reinstituted cult of the golden calves, which were instituted as soon as the kingdom split. Christ later said at Matthew 23:37, and I quote, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and you would not, in other words, and you did not desire it. Paul later indicates that those who killed the prophets were the same as those who killed Christ. He tells the Christian Thessalonians, who were suffering persecution, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, you have become imitators, brethren, of the assemblies of Yahweh in Judea, which are among the number of Yahshua Christ. Because these same things, even you have suffered by your own tribesmen, likewise they also by the Judeans. Those who killed both Prince Yahshua and the prophets and banished us and are not pleasing to Yahweh and are contrary to all men. Those who killed the prophets were also those who killed Christ, those who were not pleasing to God and who are contrary to all men. An examination of Acts chapter 17 reveals that it was the Antichrist Judeans among the Thessalonians who were actually responsible for their persecution also. They hired other Thessalonians from the markets to persecute the Christians in Thessalonia. Well, just as it was with the persecution and crucifixion of Christ, there was always some portion of the people of Israel willing to follow along with the adversaries of God. It can be told by Paul's comment in Thessalonians and by the parable of the good and bad figs in Jeremiah chapter 24 and by the statements condemning race mixing in Jerusalem in Jeremiah chapter 2, and by the statements which point race mixing out again in Ezekiel chapter 16 in Jerusalem, and in many other scriptures, that the enemies of God, who have always infiltrated and perverted Adamic nations and governments, like they did ancient Israel, were those who were truly responsible for the persecution and the perversion of righteousness. The next statements of Christ in Luke chapter 11 should prove that beyond doubt. Verse 50. In order that the blood of all the prophets spilled from the foundation of the cosmos, from the foundation of the society, should be required from this race. From the blood of Abel 
under the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house. Yeah, I say to you, it shall be required from this race. The word Ganea. Strong's number 1074 is race, stock, family, also a tribe or a nation. Secondarily, it is a race or a generation. And even if it's translated generation in any particular instance, which it cannot be here, and we will explain that. Even if it's translated generation, it still cannot lose the connotation of race, and it means a generation of people of a particular race or nation. In the King James Version, the word Ganea is more often than not translated as generation, as the King James does here. However, that's in defiance of the context, and it's in defiance of the basic meaning of the word. In this context, where the word Ganea is used, we have fathers and sons, both near and remote. Look at verses 47 and 48, where it's talking about the monuments of the prophets who lived hundreds of years before Christ and your fathers killed them. It can't mean people of one generation alive at any given time when you're talking about sons and their fathers from 600 years before time. You're talking about a race, not a generation. The word must be rendered race. We're talking about all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah, we're talking about a race, all the prophets from A to Z, right? That works in English. It doesn't really work in Greek, right? In Greek, the Z is, I think, the, the eighth letter of the alphabet, or maybe the seventh. The word must be rendered race because it's talking about all the prophets over a couple of thousand years, it can't be rendered generation. That's ridiculous. For it cannot be referring to merely a single generation. Only Cain can be held responsible for the death of Abel. No descendant of Seth, no descendant of Seth, and therefore no descendant of Adam, can be held responsible for the death of Abel. Because Seth was not yet even born when Cain killed Abel. Last week, discussing Luke chapter 10, we saw a direct scriptural connection between Satan, the Genesis 3 serpent, the fallen angels, the serpents and scorpions inhabiting Judea at the time of Christ. Here we see a clear connection to those opposing Christ in Judea and to the deaths of the prophets and to the deaths of Abel. And the deaths of Abel can only be attributed to Cain. Through a study of Scripture, a clear line can be drawn from Cain 
to his descendants, the Kenites, who mixed with the Rephaim and the Canaanites. And from them, from Genesis chapter 15, down through Esau, the Edomites, and into the ruling class of Judea in the time of Christ. What we may call two-seed-line theology is true. It is scriptural. It is the only proper way to reconcile the Bible and history once a proper understanding of what two-seed-line is is explained or is attained. Zechariah, the son of Barachias, a reading that's disputed in the Gospel of Matthew, right? The Codex Beze has it here, the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barachias, where son of Barachias is surely an interpolation. Even though it's in the majority of manuscripts in Matthew 23, 35. The apocryphal book called the Protoevangelion of James, of which an English translation is found in the Lost Books of the Bible and the Forgotten Books of Eden, identifies Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, as having been slain in the manner stated here. If that's true, then the, the, the Gospels and the books in the New Testament ignore it, right? However, I would give that account credibility before any other attempt, even by early scribes, to identify the Zechariah as the son of Barachias, or the Zechariah of the prophet known by that name, right? Verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, because you have taken the key of knowledge you do not enter in yourselves, and you prohibit those who are entering in. The Antichrist of the first century, the Edomite Jews, controlled the minds of the people of Judea through their control of the temple and therefore the religious and political life of the nation. We have the same thing today. Today we have the ADL. We have the ACLU, we have the SPLC, we have a thousand other Antichrist Jewish organizations seeking to do that same thing once again on a much grander scale. The Jews of the time of Christ would not permit any opposition that was not within their own accepted boundaries, such as the, the differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And once again today, the Jews seek to control all political opposition by defining the bounds of the debate on their own terms. Verse 53. And from that time of his coming, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press upon him cleverly. I'm sorry, and from that time of his coming forth, coming out and speaking his mind, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press upon him cleverly and question him provokingly concerning many things, laying in wait for him to catch 
something from his mouth. This is what the Jews did to Christ 2,000 years ago. And it is exactly how the Jews of today operate. Not being able to countenance truth, they resort to trumped-up charges in kangaroo courts, or sudden accidents, or political assassinations to rid themselves of opposition. They resort to pressuring Internet service providers into dumping websites to rid themselves of opposition so that they can retain control of those nations which they infest. They shout freedom and democracy until they come to power. And once they attain power, they destroy those ideals that they had formerly espoused, and they invoke a tyranny. It's the same pattern over and over again through history. When the hell are we going to learn? It's happened to white nations everywhere today, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. Here's what the Bible says about these people who we are rather suddenly, in reality only in the past few decades, electing and appointing into all sorts of positions over us from 2 John 9-11. Each who going forth and not abiding in the teaching of Christ has not God. He abiding in the teaching, he also has the Father and the Son. If one comes to you and does not bear his teaching, do not receive him into the house and do not speak to welcome him. And you sure as hell shouldn't vote for him. For he speaking to welcome him takes a share in his evil works. When the hell is America going to wake up? If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Thank you for listening. I will be back here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren and possibly Severus Nifflesen. He has the invitation. For a look at fascism, part two, I will be here next week on Friday with Luke chapter 12, Yahweh willing. I noticed there are a lot more people in the talk show program, in the talk show forum than there are on, in the Christogenia forum listening to this program. I just want to make mention for those who don't know, for the people in talk show that don't know, that um, that signing up at Christogenia, you could um, listen to the program and chat on the Christogenia chat page at the same time if you wanted to join in that. And as long as you're not a troll, you are more than welcome to. We've done that to silence the trolls and the Jews who have been harassing this program ever since I, I, I've been doing talk show three and a half years ago. But especially since my split with Eli James, two, well, about a year and eight months ago, perhaps, I'm guessing, right? So if you sign up for an account at Christagenia.org, at the main website, there's a chat page there that you'll be able to access during these programs if you desire to fellowship. 
otherwise, you're more than welcome to just listen on a stream or to listen on TalkShoe. I just thought I'd mention that because there are twice as many people on, on TalkShoe listening as there are on the Christoginia webpage. But that's fine. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. And good night. I'll be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren. <laughs>